This recording of Joseph Goldstein was made on November 3rd, 1978 at a three-month Vipassana meditation course held at Barrie, Massachusetts. On our last trip to India, we were sitting in Calcutta with Manindra J, the Mahabodhi Society. And actually, an interesting question came up because of our trip. It was a question having to do with the precepts and honesty. And in Calcutta, you can go out onto the street and buy student cards. And if you have a student card, then you can get a cheaper flight you know, to wherever you're going. And we had this dilemma, should we buy the student cards, shouldn't we? In one sense, we're students. In another sense, we weren't. <laughs> And we went back to the Mahabodhi. Actually, some of us bought them and some of us didn't. Went back to the Mahabodhi and we were talking to Manindra just about this particular issue about honesty in general, truthfulness. And he started telling a story about the Buddha in his previous lives. His previous lives as a Bodhisattva when he was working towards full enlightenment, towards Buddhahood, how in the course of those many existences and taking rebirth in many different planes of existence and in many different social strata as a human being, occasion arose to break the different precepts at different times. It would be involved in, in stealing or different kinds of sexual misconduct, killing even. Manindra was saying that there was one precept which, as a bodhisattva in all those many lifetimes, he never broke, was the commitment to being honest, the commitment to truthfulness, and how in the path of a bodhisattva, which is the path that we're all on, it's that commitment which allows us to learn from all the different experiences we have in life from the difficulties, from the time when we do things which are not so skillful, from the times when we're doing real deep practice. It's that commitment to honesty or the commitment to looking, to clear vision, which allows the whole process to be one of an opening, the whole pro process to be one of growth. Dharma practice is really the path of opening. It's the path of opening our bodies, the physical energies, of opening our senses, becoming more sensitive in sight and in hearing and in tasting and in feeling, really sensitizing our nature. The path of Dharma is the path of opening our emotional field, being willing to take the lid off and be willing to experience the full range of emotions as they may arise, not to be blocked, not to be locked into certain ones, not to be suppressing. The path of Dharma is the path of opening our intellect, really developing the inquiring mind, the ability to investigate and to explore, both in terms of our experience and in terms of our intellect, our ideas to open in that way. It's the path of opening through awareness. What we're engaged in, in this kind of practice, is just that process of opening on all these different levels. Bodily level, emotional, intellectual. What is it that keeps us closed? Why is it that we have to be involved in an opening in the first place? you examine your experience, you see that the things that keep us closed and blocked are very deeply conditioned fears. And we have these conditioned fears with regard to pain. We're afraid to feel pain, to feel unpleasantness. We're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of insecurity. We're afraid of that feeling of being insecure. Sometimes we're afraid of people, of interpersonal relations. We're afraid of death and dying. And these fears are the product of all kinds of conditioning, 
certainly in this lifetime from parents and school and media and perhaps over a period of many lifetimes. These fears that have been conditioning our mind act as a contraction, a separation, a blockage, a closing off. Whenever we respond to things with fear, it's a pulling back, a pulling away from, and we get we get locked into that space of duality, a very tight space, a very contracted one. Chuang Tzu wrote that little fears cause anxiety and big fears cause panic. You know from your own experience that range, that spectrum of response that we have, kind of little background fears which keep us in a mild level of anxiety or paranoia, and the big fears, the ones that really get intense, where the mind panics. Learning how to work with fear is in some ways the most central issue in practice. Because it's when we learn how to work with it, to make it part of our growth of understanding, it becomes possible to open up in all the different areas of our experience. It's to begin to have a very clear vision, a very clear sense of what it is that limits us in our lives, and then to go past those limitations, to go beyond them. The Dharma is the totality of our lives. It's not just part of it. It's the totality of our experience. And what that means is that every part of our experience is workable, is a workable situation. We can use any of the times of fear or anxiety or panic to learn exactly about the limitations that we've been conditioned to invest in. We can use those situations to open up, to open up even more. Fear of pain, something that already in the time that you've been here has been probably for most of you, a fairly important issue. How to work with pain, to begin to see how we've been conditioned to avoid unpleasantness, to pull back, and to see the possibility of letting go of that conditioning, letting go of that fear, and being open to feeling the pain. Pain is a good one to start with, because it's very tangible and very obvious. There's nothing very subtle about a strong pain in the knee or pain in the back. And there's nothing very subtle about our reactions to it. Mostly in the beginning, it's go away, I don't like you, right? Or a contraction out of fear. And a lot of the beginning of practice is working with this very tangible manifestation of unpleasantness and watching our mind's reaction to it. In doing that, you learn to be increasingly skillful, both in exploring the pain itself, in seeing what it's about, and in deconditioning the response of contraction, deconditioning the response of fear. As long as we're afraid to be uncomfortable, and you see it both in terms of the sitting practice and in terms of our experience in life, a kind of fear or pulling away from uncomfortable situations. As long as we're afraid of discomfort, it's a tremendous limitation in our lives. There are so many experiences which may be uncomfortable and yet are the most fruitful in terms of learning, of opening. By pulling away from discomfort, it's as if we cut off half of our life's experience. To begin to look at that, to look at our mind's reaction to discomfort, and to begin to settle in in a very soft and allowing way, to allow ourselves to feel it. It's not only learning about accepting pain and learning not to buy into the fear or contraction about it. It's also beginning to appreciate that discomfort, in some circumstances, kind of the price we pay for a lot of beauty. 
getting up at 4.30 on a cold morning is not so comfortable. It would be more comfortable to stay in your nice warm sleeping bag. And yet once you get up and get into the discomfort of it and just get up and get dressed, and you walk outside and you experience the stillness of that time of early morning, there's a very exquisite beauty that's happening. And it's only through the initial discomfort that you open to the beauty of it. The fear of pain has very much to do with the fear of the physical elements manifesting in various degrees of intensity. And those same physical elements, which can be very intense, can also be an experience of very great beauty. To be willing to go through the discomfort, to appreciate the wonder of it, In India, it happened all the time because basically existence there is uncomfortable and everything is a hassle. Transportation is difficult and arranging things is difficult. I remember one time we were taking this journey. It was to Rajgir, which is a town near Bodh Gaya, famous in the Buddhist uh, tradition because he gave many uh, discourses there and spent many rainy seasons. Vulture's Peak, which is the site of many of the discourses, is in Rajgir. We had to get up very early in the morning and go on this very uncomfortable bus ride. And all the time that we're beginning, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? And I could stay in Bodhgaya and I could be sitting, and at least I'd be reasonably comfortable. And you're just getting up and doing it, and being out on that bus just as the dawn was coming up and going through the countryside. It was so exquisite. And it was It stayed in my mind as a lesson, again, about not letting the fear of discomfort be a limitation in what we're willing to do. Because there's so much to experience, and so much of it is very beautiful. Fear of pain. Mostly, at this point in retreat, you've worked with a lot and have learned that sense of being soft and being allowing and settling into it. There's another kind of fear which is more subtle than that of pain, and that's the fear of insecurity, afraid of things that we don't know about. What does this do? Our fear of insecurity keeps us bound to what's familiar, and what's known, keeps us bound to habits, makes the mind very complacent. Kind of get into a very comfortable space, and it's the fear of insecurity which makes us cling to that space. We don't want to rock the boat too much. We don't know what's going to happen. Along with this fear of insecurity caught up in that, is something which could be described as a fear of making mistakes. Bhimala Thakkar, who's a very great woman teacher from India, a student and friend of Krishnamurti, has a very incisive mind, very much in the Krishnamurti style, very powerful, very direct, extremely cutting and clear, cutting through confusion. When she was still with Krishnamurti and more or less his student, disciple, he was urging her to begin teaching. And she was very reluctant to do it. She didn't want to go out and talk to people and address people in that way. And after much urging, Krishnamurti kind of scolding her. He said, you know, the reason that you're not doing it is that you're afraid to make mistakes. Don't be afraid. It's okay to go out and to put ourselves out there. We don't have to be so afraid of that insecurity or the, the fear of making a mistake that it limit us, kind of bind us in a narrow field of action. Part of this fear of insecurity also has to do with fear of people, fear in interpersonal relationships. and. Anybody who has sat at all and watched their minds 
can run through the litany of those kind of interpersonal fears, fear that you won't be liked, you won't be accepted, or you won't be respected, or you won't be noticed. Nobody will know that you're around. What happens when we get caught in that kind of fear in an interpersonal, interpersonal sphere? One of the things that it causes is causes us to project self-images, kind of create a self-image and put the self-image out there. This is who I am. And we create a self-image which we think will make people like us or respect us or notice us or accept us. Of course, not realizing that the self-image simply creates a prison for us. We create this concept of who we are based on that fear of insecurity. And then we get locked into that very concept which we've created. And it's a tremendous limitation in how we relate to people, to situations. We get boxed in by our own mental concept of ourselves. But fear of insecurity and fear of people, of relating, also causes the mind to get caught in judgments. And we start judging other people as they're better than we are, or they're worse than we are, they're very stupid, they dress really well, I like the way that person walks, I don't like the way that person eats. And also, just in watching the mind for one day, you see this enormous amount of judging that goes on. What's causing that judgment? What's we feed it because of a fear of just being in relationship in the most open and honest and fearless way. Self-images limit us, they create prison. Judgments separate us. They really separate us from other people. One of the biggest fears in interpersonal relationship is the fear of being open, the fear of acknowledging our own vulnerability. You know, we all have that space in ourselves that's very sensitive, very raw, very vulnerable. But mostly we like to hide that. We don't like to kind of acknowledge that we have that space in us with other people. And an important part of the whole opening of our mind, of our emotions, of our body, is that acknowledging that place of vulnerability. And it makes possible a very deep kind of communication. I'll share with you one story that my experience in practice, there was a very deep one. There was a very deep insight involved. <coughs> and it had to do Actually, it happened just about a year ago when I went to uh, the session with Suzaki Roshi. It was the first session I had done. And I go there and kind of all set for practice. It's a very different form than this. It's very formalized, quite strict in the discipline. Suzaki himself can manifest in many different ways and does. For me, that week, he was manifesting I'm sure in reflection of my own mind state, but it was manifesting as being pretty fierce. And with him in the session, you're working with a koan. You know, he gives you this problem, and then you go in, and in a very formalized, stylized way, you go in and you do your bows, and you say your koan, and he asks it back, and then you do something, like demonstrating your answer. As the week went on, I was getting more and more uptight, the answers were, his responses to my answers were, oh, very stupid. Well, <laughs> you know, more meditation. Uh, too much self. <laughs> and I was getting more and more discouraged and more and more... <laughs> and after about three or four days, you see him four times a day and it's like nothing was going right. And my mind was getting very tense and really out there, was going in and doing the most bizarre things. <laughs> Finally, I think, in desperation, he gave me another koan, I think it was 
kind of a half a step backwards. <laughs> and the, the koan he gave me then was, how do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting the sutra? Okay, that I kind of knew what he was after, and how do you manifest Buddha nature chanting the sutra? Go in and chant a bit of the sutra. Very simple. It so happens that that particular issue happened to touch a very sensitive spot in me, stemming back to some third grade teacher who thought that I wasn't singing properly and said, you just mouthed the words. <laughs> and since that time, this whole kind of issue around chanting or singing, so when he said, okay, how do you manifest Buddha nature chanting a sutra? The thought of going in there and chanting a sutra sent my mind into a state of total panic. You know, because he's sitting there very formidable anyway. And <laughs> you know, it was like going out to the Carnegie Hall or something. So for the next few meditations, I'm sitting in meditation. In the session, do a lot of chanting anyway. In the group, it was fine. So I was trying to memorize like five or six syllables of some chant that I'm going to present to him as my answer to the koan. And going over and over and over, like a million times, these five Japanese syllables. Yeah, and kind of stealing myself for the next interview. I go in... I was a total wreck. Right? And my mind was really so raw and exposed and vulnerable and I just felt totally inside out. It was very painful. It was not at all a pleasant situation. So I go in and I do my bows and I say my koan and I kind of stumble out these few syllables in something resembling a chant and I got the third syllable wrong, and I forgot the last two. <laughs> you know, that's reflective of my mind state. He just looked at me. He sat there, and it was, it was a real moment of stillness. And I was feeling totally exposed and open in that moment. And he looked at me, and with the most incredible sense of love and compassion, said, oh, very good. And it's as if those words in the most delicate way, touched my heart. And it was so profound to see that in the moment of being most exposed and most vulnerable and most open was also the possibility of experiencing a level of love that was far deeper than anything I'd ever experienced. It had gone so deep to see that possibility. And I came to a very respectful appreciation of the necessity of opening to those vulnerable spaces, of really being willing with ourselves, with other people, to be naked, to be open, to be raw. Because in that openness, when we start peeling away the masks, there's the possibility of that very, very delicate and deep communion, communication. This acknowledging our vulnerability and being okay with it, allowing for it, is a very big part of the whole opening process. This is from Gurdjieff. He said, those aspects of yourself which seem to be weaknesses may blossom into the true strength of your practice while the apparent strengths may well be the real weaknesses to overcome. Those things that seem to be the greatest weaknesses in us, our fears, our anxieties, the difficulties, that's exactly the place of the most richness in practice. It's the place that's the most opening, the most transforming. And all those places that we feel very strong and comfortable, kind of self-satisfied with, that very complacency that can come out of that feeling of strength in a certain area may well, may well be where our greatest attachment lies. So it's coming to appreciate all of the weaknesses 
and our fears and our anxieties and our vulnerability and being willing to honor them and open to them. Fear of pain, fear of all different kinds of insecurity, fear of death, that's a very deep one. It's a very deeply conditioned one. It has to do different things. On one level, it has to do with holding on to this mind-body as being self. The more attached we are to this thing as being I, as being self, as being mine, the more panic there's going to be as we go through the process of dying and death. It's going to change. There's no way it's going to stay the same. It's no way that it's going to live forever. And of course, on the one hand, it seems so obvious. And you wonder why we would ever be conditioned to want to hold on to it when it's so clear that it's in a process of transformation. Now, when we see the leaves fall in the autumn, there's no, you don't see the trees trying to hold on. And even in observing it, there's no sense of sadness. It's more, more an appreciation of the beauty of it and just the cycle of nature. We're no different at all from those leaves falling from the tree. It's, it's as natural a part of our existence, taking birth, growing older, decaying, and dying. And yet there's a great fear of death because we hold on. We take some part of this process, this is who I am, and I don't want to see it change. One of the most quoted phrases from the Indian Wars, the American Indian Wars, was Crazy Horse's comment at a battle in which the Sioux, the Sioux Indians were greatly outnumbered. Today is a good day to die, for all the things of my life are here. Most native people did not understand their lives as a sequence of goals, getting an education, getting married, raising children, being an elder at the end of which lay a sense of final completion. For them, once one entered adulthood or maturity, often at the age of only 10 or 12, life was complete. One could only continue to grow in that state. In the way a sphere already complete can continue to expand, to become fuller. There was no thought of not having done enough in one's life, of being, of being too young to die or of still having your whole life ahead of you. With that continuous sense of a full life, no one was tyrannized by the prospect of death. Any day, but especially one in which you were living to the hilt, was a good day to die. That's a very different sense than most of us have of looking forward to more experiences or more things, things left undone that we'd like to do, trying to gratify or defect, defend or protect ourselves. It's a sense of real fullness in each moment, having that sense of living to the hilt in every moment, and it's exactly in any of those moments that it's a good time to die, because it's at the time of the fullest experience. And it's exactly in any of those moments that it's a good time to die, because it's at the time of the fullest experience. This fear of death is dealt with very directly in practice, certain stages of unfolding, especially when you begin to see the continuous dissolution of everything. When you get to that point in practice where anything you turn your attention to is just dissolving. Your thoughts are dissolving, your body is dissolving, sounds are dissolving. In fact, for many people at that time in practice, actually visual objects dissolve as you're, as you're watching them. You can be seeing something and it'll just disappear. And the mind is so tuned to that aspect of dissolution. And mostly what happens initially in that kind of perception is that people get very afraid. Because it's a real sense 
it is a moment-to-moment dying in a very real way. And out of that comes what's called the stage of fear and anxiety and terror because the mind's initial reaction to that, to that dissolution, to that death, is a fear. We're holding on so tightly. But when you see it, and you see that that's the nature of things, you come out of the fear into a place of very great equanimity, very great peace. When you let go of the holding on and settle into the process, then there's no fear there at all. How to work with fear? Now, we see it in all these different ways. We see it in pain. We see it with respect to people and interpersonally, the fear of insecurity, the fear of dying. I think the most important foundation in working with fear is to have a very healthy respect for it because our conditioning goes very deep. It's not a superficial matter at all. In some ways, it's among the deepest aspects of our conditioning. And so to really respect that force in the mind, that energy, it's not a light matter, and it is going to come up a lot in different times. And it takes a very slow and patient and allowing state of mind to work with it. The first, the first tool that we have to use is recognizing it. Really exploring the feeling. You're in a certain situation and fear arises. Recognize it and explore how you're actually feeling in the body, in the mind. And coming to a sense of real acceptance, not resisting, not fighting, not thinking that fear is bad and it should go away. Settling back into it. I had another interesting experience this last year in my practice. I was doing a self-course in May. Actually, it was tied to last year's Sashin story. I was doing a self-course, and I was sitting for about two weeks, three weeks, and just after the self-course, I was going to another Sashin right, in Ithaca. And somewhere into the course, my mind started throwing up this incredible fear of the first interview. <laughs> you know, he's going to get me again. <laughs> and I was watching it, and I saw how ridiculous it was. You know, I kept telling this is stupid. You're here, just watch your breath. The fear just grew and grew and grew, and all the while I'm telling myself all the stuff I tell you, you know, just watch <laughs> it. And <laughs> And it didn't help. <laughs> and it just seemed to go stronger and become more enveloping. And I was going through every possible kind of trick about it. And it lasted for three days. I was just in this. And after a while, it, it became unrelated to any issue. It was just fear <laughs> manifesting in the mind very strongly. Three days in sitting and walking and eating the fear was present. On the third day, a very interesting thing happened. I was outside walking, just on the tennis courts there. And again, this had been, this had been the object of my meditation for the past three days. It was very intense and very overpowering. And in doing the walking that one time, I came to a space, not simply intellectually knowing it, but settling into a real experience of totally allowing that fear. I remember my mind saying, it's okay to feel this, but not just saying it, really knowing it. It's okay to feel this. I don't have to do anything about it. And in that, it's okay to feel it. The real acceptance of it, in that instant of acceptance, that whole mass of fear dissipated. And it was such a lesson again in, first of all, I saw how up until that point, even though I had been telling myself, you know, just accept it, just watch it, it's okay. It was only when I actually did it, when I actually settled into allowing it, that I saw in retrospect that until that point, there had been very subtle resistances, you know. 
Oh, just watch, just watch, but I wish you'd go away. Right? Just, you're bothering my practice and it's not comfortable and, you know, I wish my mind were clear. And all of those resistances were exactly what was locking it in. And it was only when I could, in a very total and complete way, it's okay to feel this. And in that instant, that kind of solidification of fear dissipated and disappeared. To really see that and work with that, work with that sense of real acceptance, to watch for even subtle manifestations of resistance or aversion or dislike or expectation that it should change, it's only in settling in and allowing fully that the whole process unfolds in its most natural way. Another way of working with the fear, and these are not alternatives, but rather just different aspects, is trying to recognize the situation that causes it. You know, mostly we have fear of future things. Very rarely does fear arise from the actual experience in the moment of something, but rather we project how an experience is going to be. You know, we're sitting and watching a pain, and usually it's not that pain itself which causes the fear, but the thought that it's going to get worse. And so we build up a fear of what might happen. We generalize into the future, and then we become afraid of it. So to allow ourselves to settle into being with the object directly, being with the pain, being with the person, whatever the situation is, it means staying very soft. The fear is so strongly conditioned that generally we go in very heavy-handed, you know, and either trying to push it down or trying to avoid it. It takes the most soft and delicate and gentle kind of awareness to allow whatever it is that's causing that fear to come up, to become conscious, whether it's physical things, whether it's emotional states. In some ways, you want to nurture those states. You don't want to avoid them. There's something in your mind that you're afraid to look at. First, it's knowing that the fear is probably projected, and second, to take care and be very soft in allowing it to arise. If you give any energy to the resistance, to the pushing away, it's going to stay down and stay suppressed, and you're not going to be able to work with it in a very insightful or clearing way. It's almost like if you want to grow, a, to sprout a seed, you have to take the most delicate care in all the right conditions little the seed sprouts. In just the same way, all of those dark corners of the mind, which generally we keep a lid on, and which we're conditioned to be afraid of, welcome them. Be very soft and allowing, so quiet, so that you're not interfering at all with their natural arising in the mind. And it's, it's in that process of these states arising that we can decondition our fearful response and just see them and let go of them. It's a very great opening up. Another way of working with fear is taking a very clear measure of the situation and taking appropriate action. Sometimes that action means being a warrior, really being courageous, and doing things in spite of the fear. It should be done with discriminating wisdom. It's not that you necessarily throw yourself into dangerous situations so you can prove that you're a warrior. But when your faculty of discriminating wisdom says there's really no reason to hold back, and it's just some conditioning in the mind, be a warrior, be courageous about it, do what you're afraid to do. I've had that experience many times, or we all have in our life. One story, which I've mentioned before to some of you, when I was teaching a retreat in Hawaii and we were out camping, we were at a place with some pretty steep cliffs. 
I was with friends from Hawaii who were very familiar, and they were going up and down these cliffs very naturally. It wasn't like there was a path on the cliffs, it was just little footholds here and there, and mostly the rock was very crumbly. You know, I looked at these cliffs and I thought, that's not for me. And yet I saw that it was the fear that was keeping me back from it, and I'm going to just do it anyway. And I kind of steeled myself, despite the fear, to go out and do it. What was interesting was not that the fear went away, because I was very nervous the whole time up and the whole time down. But I saw that you can act even if fear is there. It doesn't have to limit you. You can, you can acknowledge the fear and be with it and still do what you want to do or do what you think is appropriate. But another example of that in another way, and this particular example taught me a lot of compassion. I was in Colorado two summers ago, and my mother came to visit. We went up to the mountains, and she's not an outdoor person at all. She doesn't have that kind of particular interest or experience in hiking and being, being outdoors. Anyway, we drive up to the mountains and we park the car, and not the high mountains, just kind of like the forest and some meadows and a stream. And there was this little path going down the side of a hill to the stream. And to my mind, it was, not, it was nothing. I mean, anybody could have walked down that path. My mother came out, and she was really nervous about that. She wasn't at all comfortable. And at first, I, you know, I was kind of annoyed by it, and just come on, do it. You know, <laughs> mothers. <laughs> Here's this beautiful spot. And finally, after much coaxing, you know, and kind of holding her arm and walking down this little bit of an incline, you know. <laughs> but it, it wasn't a very, it wasn't a very well-trodden path. <laughs> anyway, we get down there and it was very beautiful and she really had a nice time. It was in the most exquisite spot. And again, the same thing going up, there was a lot of fear. And what I saw, especially by the time we had gotten up, that doing that for her was exactly the same as climbing the cliffs for me. And somebody who was very easy about climbing cliffs would have their own edge that somebody else would look back on and say, you know, why are you afraid of that? And then we all have our own edge, and it doesn't really matter whether it's climbing cliffs or walking down a little path in the forest or... It's respecting that place in everybody and not being judgmental can really open in a very compassionate way to the place where everybody's working at their limit and be supportive and be helpful for that. Being a warrior or being courageous really means being willing to take risks. It means being willing to play the edge, not to hold back from those places that are fearful but to go right to them, because that's the most interesting place in practice. That's the place in practice and in our lives that encircle us and keep us bound, that are the limitations of our experience. And that's exactly the place that's the most fascinating, the most electric to work at, to be right at the edge and to be willing to go further. And it can be in physical ways, things that we're afraid to do physically, it can be staying out at night if you're afraid of the dark. It can be taking eight precepts if you're panicky about not having enough food. You know, at a retreat, very often the thought of missing a meal is like the most horrendous thing that can happen. You know, miss breakfast or miss lunch. To work with, in one sense it sounds silly, but it, you know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> to work at those places, not to hold back. We're afraid of being sleepy. Now, how many times do you go to sleep at night out of fear that the next day you're going to be sleepy, so I'd better go to sleep now? You know, that's a kind of fear, too. That's a kind of edge. To be willing to play there, to be willing to play right at the limits, is the most exciting place of practice.
another really important balance to that is being able to smile at yourself, to laugh at situations, not to take it all too seriously. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in the melodrama of our pain or our fear or our situation that we lose that sense of the dance of it all. We start getting very grim and very combative and I'm going to conquer this fear. And you do want to work with it and you do want to play the edge, but always with a sense if possible, of some kind of lightness, some kind of seeing the humor of it. Munindra gave me one piece of advice, which is somewhat related to this issue, mostly to keeping a sense of humor. In talking about desire and working with not giving in to every desire, you know, reading the request notes that come into the office, is a total trip. It would make a very interesting book <laughs> of what people think they need in order to survive here. <laughs> to work with the possibility, you know, that you may not need everything you think you need. Anyway, he was talking about uh, my own practice and working with those kinds of desires. Mostly it had to do with, you know, the desire to go into town for sweets or chai, tea. <laughs> because that's how it manifests there in India. And he said, fine, the mind wants to go, let the mind go, the body stays here. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and it's that sense of recognizing what's going on with a quality of lightness. But as you practice, you open up to what's actually going on when you take refuge in the Buddha and Dharma and Sangha. Taking refuge in the Buddha is that sense of trust in the moment, of trusting your experience, of coming back in and out, lifting, moving, placing, feeling, seeing, to come back to the most basic aspects of your Buddha nature in every moment. And when you can do that, again, it cuts through fear, it cuts through confusion. Taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge. Taking refuge in your commitment to being honest, to being truthful, to being open, to being willing to experience the whole range of things, the things which make you really high and happy, the things which evoke a lot of fear, willingness to be with unpleasantness, not to pull away from discomfort. That's what refuge in the Dharma means. It's a surrender to the truth to surrender to openness, to willingness. The last one <clears throat> is the refuge in Sangha, and it's one that is the most beautiful. Because what that is, is developing the trust of working with a community of people who are loving and supportive and non-judgmental and accepting of all the things we have to go through. You know, all of us on the path, it's like we're babies learning how to walk. And you take a step and you fall and the mind does all kinds of things and you feel foolish and you feel wise and you feel panicky and you feel fear and you feel joy and all these different things. And to be in an environment that's allowing for all of that, which is accepting, and which is loving for all of that, is just the greatest blessing. Because it's, it's the most fruitful area in which we can learn and grow, in which we can help ourselves, help others. So refuge in the Sangha is really coming to a tremendous sense of trust and appreciation of everything we're doing together. Do you have any questions, please? <laughs> the question was, what's the difference between healthy sexuality and lust? <laughs> Actually, I think there's a pretty simple way to distinguish 
not that there's a clear-cut division, <laughs> but you know in your own mind when you're driven and compulsive about it, and when it just becomes a really nice part of your life experience. When you're driven and compulsive about it, it's not, it, it's not so skillful. You know, you're really being a slave to a particular, to a particular sense desire. It's not at all pleasant. You know the feeling of being driven by something. It's a very contracted, limiting way of being in the world. To begin to free the mind from that kind of addiction to a particular mind state is to allow yourself to settle back and respond to situations in a very appropriate way. When it feels really appropriate to be in a sexual relationship, fine. But then there's not, that, there's not that sense either of being driven to it or of the, the clinging or possessiveness or trying desperately to hold on to it. It's much more, it's much more natural and flowing and when it's there, fine, and if it's not there, fine. And then there's a real beauty to it. It's just, it's another beautiful part of our experience. Again, you know, mostly it's not the actions themselves which are either good or bad. It's, it's almost always how we're relating to them, how the mind is relating to it. It's true that, it, that in those states it, it is very helpful to be in a supportive, supportive environment and that when you're not and you're feeling very open and vulnerable, two things come to mind. One is to be very loving to yourself, right? to really surround yourself with that kind of loving, accepting space. And the second is to be somewhat protective. You know, when you are very sensitive and very vulnerable, maybe you want to withdraw a little bit or create some space. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be the kind of tightening up and pushing it down. It's really allowing yourself to feel it right? and to, to be raw in that way, but taking care. You know, taking care with who you're with or your situation. Okay, if you have other questions, you can come up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.